Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church podcast. For more information about Redemption Church, please visit redemptionokc.com. You can stay up to date on sermons by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. Exciting times. Lots lots of fun stuff going on. And grateful for you all and to be on this journey with you. Well, let's get into the Word. Now, we're going to be 2 Samuel chapter 5. And so if you want to turn there. Last week was the plans of God and the messes of men. And those aren't hard to find in the Bible or in real life, are they? Uh, messes are pretty easy to, to identify, and none of them are uh, very difficult to locate. And so last week, we looked at some of those messes. Well, this week's the plans of God and the mighty men. Do you know it's not all bad in the world? Like there is actually good that happens, and sometimes God's plans come to fruition, and God's promises are fulfilled, and we get to celebrate, and there's joy in the land. And uh, man, I know I need, I need to know that faith can bring us good in these days, and that, that God can use us uh, to do good, and that um, that there's lots of messes, and yet we need some mighty men in our world. Uh, friends, when our, when our confidence is in God, um, we can give our passion to his plans. And so that's what we're going to see today. Uh, let's look at Second Samuel chapter 5, and we'll start off in verse 1. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are, bone of your fl- bone, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led us out and brought us in Israel. And the Lord said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people, Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came uh, came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David king over all Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah for seven years and six months, and at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah for 33 years. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites and the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, you will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking, David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David. And David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind, who are hated by David's soul. Seems like a strange thing. We'll come back to that in a minute. Therefore, it is, the, it is said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. And David lived in the stronghold and called it, called it the city of David. And David built the city all around from the millow outward, inward, I'm sorry. And David became greater and greater for the Lord God of hosts was with him. And we'll stop there. So David knew uh, that the Lord himself had made, uh, made David king over Israel, not just for his sake, but for the sake of others. And you notice it says that the model for this was that he will be a shepherd. Now, I probably don't have to tell you a whole lot about human history, but most kings don't have as a, as a model uh, being a shepherd as a model for leadership. And yet uh, this kind of idea of biblical leadership was really that he'd be a shepherd king. And that was to guard against the typical oppression uh, that, that would happen within most kingdoms. And uh, a shepherd's never overbearing or oppressive. A shepherd is always working for the good of a sheep. And so that was the model, the biblical model of a servant leader that God gave to David that he was to model. In fact, uh, chapter five is really here to set the tone for David's kingdom. Now, the reality is the, the four events that take place here in this chapter. So David set apart as king, then uh, David going and, and winning uh, the, this battle in Jerusalem to take over Jerusalem. And then a little bit later, it mentions uh, 
uh, some of his sons and potential heirs of the kingdom. And then it goes on and has two battles against the Philistines. We're not going to have time to walk through all this, but those are not here chronologically. These are not the things that happen in order in terms of the timeline. David didn't come on the throne, win Jerusalem, fight the Philistines twice. Uh, those are arranged here because of their importance to the nation of Israel. They're here because they were incredibly significant events. And so they kind of have pride of place among the, the nation of Israel that David became king. David won Jerusalem and gave them a new capital. Uh, David gave them unity as a country. And David drove out their biggest enemy, the Philistines, and brought peace and prosperity and good flour and flourishing to the land. And so this was kind of the golden age of Israel. For them as a nation, these were the glory days. These were the days they looked back and went, oh man, if we had the time of David. Uh, th this was the best time for them. And Jerusalem was the most important city in the Bible. Now, let me show you why this is such an important moment. Why is Jerusalem, the city of Zion, we call it sometimes, the city of David, becomes known as the city of God. Why is the city Jerusalem so important? Well, way back in Genesis 15, if you go all the way back, so what's the first book of the Bible, those of you that are new? Genesis. And so if you're going back to the very beginning, Genesis 15, God promises a man named Abraham that he is going to bless Abraham. And though Abraham's an old man and childless, he says, you're going to have offspring. Your descendants are going to fill the earth. And my people are going to work through you. And, I, and through that, you're going to be, be a blessing to all the nations. Now, in that, there was a specific thing that was tied to that covenant, the blessing that God gave to Abraham and the promise that God gave to Abraham. And it was this. I'm going to give you a land, a promised land that's going to be yours, where your people are going to dwell, and you're going to drive out these people. So Genesis 15, verse 18 says, On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cabanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Now, did, did you see the last name in that list there? What is it? The Jebusites. Now, who was it that David fought in 2 Samuel chapter 5? It was the Jebusites. That's why this is so important. See, David taking over Jerusalem was a fulfillment of the promise which God gave to Abraham 800 years earlier. That's why it was here. It's the first thing that's mentioned. Now, here's the thing you need to know about this. When God promised the land to Abram, uh, all the lands that he promised to them were currently inhabited by other people, and they were to go and to drive them out of the land and take possession of it. And so this was something that had been a problem for nearly 1,000 years, 800 years, and it shows up over and over in the Bible. Look at Joshua 15. Said it this way, so a few chapters after Genesis, we get to Joshua, and that's when uh, they go around and they, they march around the city and the walls fall down and they get to go in, and that begins them taking over the land. And in that, they were supposed to move throughout the rest of the land and drive everyone out. Look what we see here in Joshua 15, though. It says, but the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the people of Judah could not drive out. So the Jebusites dwell with the people of Judah at Jerusalem even to this day. So that's Joshua, the time of Joshua. Skip forward just a little more in Israel's history. Go to the time of Judges. Judges 1 says, And the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. So there's still battle going on in the time of Judges. A little later, Judges 1, 21. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. And so the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. So, this has been a long time coming, right? Do you see why the Jebusites might have been a little cocky? Might have been a little overconfident? I mean, the, the Israelites have been fighting for 400 years to get in this land. I mean, it took them 400 years to get there, and then 400 years of not taking over. They had a long wait 
to try to take over this land. Now, it's kind of a funny scene, really, when you think about it. It's, it's a little bit throwing off because there's this whole conversation about the lame and the blind. And it says David hates him. Let me explain that because I think it's important. What happens is there's a big wall around the city and from the top of that wall, they can throw stones down on the enemy. They can shoot arrows down on the enemy. It gives them a strategic advantage. And what the Jebusites say is they kind of just mock David when David and his men come up and they go, dude, you're never getting in here. In fact, if we only had lame and blind soldiers, we'd still whip you. That's what's happening here. It's like a scene out of Monty Python, right? Any of you know Monty Python where the guy's up on the wall and he's taunting him and he's like, come back here and I'll taunt you a second time. And uh, I'm trying to think, I even looked up a couple of the things. I was trying to remember the things he said, but you know, your mother is a hamster and your father smells of elderberries. You know, so the Monty Python, he's up there, they're taunting him. It's really that kind of a thing. So help you have the Jebusites on the wall and they're taunting David going, dude, the lame and the blind would whip you guys. You're never getting in here. And yet, uh, and so David, it says that, he, it was, that they were hated by David's soul, meaning he hated the fact that they were taunting the people of God and the promises of God because they didn't think that they could, ever, they could ever be overtaken. And so that's why, do you see now why this is here in 2 Samuel 5? That when David takes the throne, the first thing they put in their, in their history is, and David won Jerusalem finally, because that was the fulfillment of the promise that God gave them in, through the person of Abraham that made them a nation and was fulfilled now 800 years later. So verse 10, it says, And David became greater and greater, for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. Now, obviously, the Lord's the ultimate victor here. Uh, one man said, God, God's promises are not stamped with an expiration date in small print. And don't you love that? Like God's, God's promises don't have an expiration date. We, we, don't have to, we don't have to throw them out if they don't show up in what we think is the right time. We can wait on them, and God's going to bring them about and fulfill them. Do you ever have a trouble, though, trusting God's promises? Do you ever wonder and just say, Lord, how long? Lord, when? Uh, friends, it's easy to doubt God's promises when some of them take 800 years to be fulfilled, don't they? Can I just encourage you? We're not the first generation to doubt God's promises. We're not the first generation to waver in our faith at times. But God's plans march on. God's plans and his promises are always fulfilled in his time. So rest assured, we can hold fast to our faith. We can trust God's promises. I also want to point out something very important in the story. In verse 6, you notice it says, and the king and his men went to Jerusalem to fight against the Jebusites. The king and his men is, is sounds like just a little phrase, but it's actually pointing to a larger part of David's story. If we're going to talk about the life of David, you really can't talk about the life of David without talking about uh, what became these guys who became known as the mighty men. See, David had this relative, a small group of mighty men that gave him support even in those days before he became king, and they were a part of this. Joyce Baldwin, a commentator, said, these were men that could be depended on to vie for each other in achieving the impossible. These were men who had locked arms in brotherhood and friendship to fight the battles that the Lord would have in front of them in order to try to bring about something no one thought they could ever do. And yet they walked by faith and they came in. And their stories are told in First Chronicles chapter 11 and 12. And I actually want us to go there for a little bit. I want to, I want to tell you some of the stories of these men because uh, as a guy growing up, I remember as a kid reading some of these and I love these stories of these warriors and everything that's happening and um, it's just fun stuff to unpack. And so I want us to look here just a little bit, but I also want you to understand that these aren't just brave men. These aren't just strong men. These are men of faith. These are men who believed that the word of the Lord was true. So when, when God said, I ripped the kingdom away from Saul and reject him as king, but I have anointed and given it to David and David will be king. These are men who actually believed that, that, was, that they should live as though that were true. That when David didn't look like a king, these are men who treated David as king. 
even before it seemed like all those promises had come true. And so there's something special about people who trust the Lord and stick it out when times are tough. There's something special about people who have faith to see what God may do, even when God hasn't done it yet, who may trust and, and walk in faith. And these are men who, when David was an outlaw living in caves, when David was in exile, when David was run away, when there were 3,000 uh, soldiers hunting him down like a wild animal, David said, these are men who went to David in that time and locked arms with him and said, if God says you're our king, then you're my king. And they trusted him. And so I want to just share with you some about these men. Look at, uh, as, as we get down into, into chapter 11, look at me at verse 10. It says, now these are the chiefs of David's mighty men who gave him strong support in his kingdom together with all of Israel to make him king according to the word of the Lord concerning Israel. See, these are men who, they heard the word of the Lord, they believed the word of the Lord, and they made strong commitment in order to make that happen. And in that, it says, this is the account of David's mighty men, uh, Jashoabim, a Hakamanite, um, who was chief of the three. He wielded a spear against 300 men whom he killed at one time. That's a tough dude, right? Look at verse 12. Let's keep going. It says, and next to him among the three mighty men was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, the Ahawite. He was with David in Pasdamim, uh, however you say that one. Uh, when, see, even preachers sometimes can't figure out how to say some of these things and, and, and fumble it. Uh, but when the Philistines were gathered there for battle, there was a plot of ground full of barley and all the men fled from the Philistines, but he took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and killed the Philistines. And the Lord saved them by a great victory. Man, this is a, this is a guy who was gonna take his stand for a field of barley, right? And everyone's leaving and he's like, dude, you're not getting my barley. And he stopped right there pivoted, turned, and fought him, and fought him off, and protected that thing. Now, these are, these are some tough dudes, and I guess you kind of have to be a tough dude if you're, if you're known as the son of Dodo, um, and I think I'm pronouncing that right. If it's Dudu, that's even worse, right? But, but like if, you're, if that's kind of how you're known in the community, you're probably going to be a tough guy anyway, and this guy clearly was, uh, but these are mighty men who gave their lives in support of, uh, of David. Now, of course, one of my favorite stories, uh, kind of in this whole thing is down in verse 15. I want to read this one to you. It says, three of the 30 chief men went down to the rock of David at the cave of Adullam. Do you remember the caves of Adullam we saw in 1 Samuel chapter, uh, I mean, yeah, back in 1 Samuel. And back when David was in exile, he had to re leave and he left and, and lived, in, lived in a cave. And he lived like a wild man. And it says all the kind of ne'er-do-wells of the society went out and joined him. So all the homeless people and the people that were running from the law and people that had uh, bail bonds that were, you know, they couldn't pay off were, we're back hiding out there with David in this cave of Adullam. These are the guys that, these were soldiers who were faithful men who went and joined David when he looked like that, right? So verse 15, uh, they went down to the rock of David at the cave of Adullam when the army of the Philistines was encamped at the valley of Rephaim. David was in the stronghold and the garrison of the Philistines was then, was then at Bethlehem. And David said longingly, oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. And can you just see that right there? I kind of picture the scene of them sitting by a fire and they're just laying there and they've been away from home. They haven't had the comforts of home. He hadn't had a real bed in forever. He's put his head on a rock in the middle of a cave. For, that's his bedroom. And you just have this nostalgic moment. Have you ever been there where you look back and you just think, man, I, would, I just wish I could go home. I wish I could be in my own bed. I wish I could have my own thing. And David thinks about this one water fountain at the gate in Bethlehem and he goes, Man, that was the best water, the cleanest, the purest. You ever, any of you remember drinking water out of a hose when you were a kid? 
See, I, it probably had tons of chemicals and stuff I didn't need, but there's something about that. Like I can smell it even as I tell you about it. In a hot summer day, when you would go and just crank the hose on and you just put it out there and you know, go everywhere, and then you give it to the next kid and he'd stick it in his mouth and do the same thing. But there's something even nostalgic about that, right? I think that's what David's doing here is he's away from home and he's suffered for a long time. He's going, man, if I could just have water from the gate at Bethlehem, that would be amazing. And so look what happens. Three of the mighty men broke from the camp and went through, it, through the army of the Philistines, drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and took it and brought it back to David. Is that not amazing? David's just sitting there around the campfire going, man, I'd love some water. And these dudes go, I'm on it. Y'all ready? Let's go. Break through, risk their whole lives, do everything, come back and hand David a cup of water. Dude, here's your water. And so what's David do? He can't do that. He's like, that'd be like drinking your lifeblood. You risk your whole life for this. So he just pours it out, it says, as a libation to the Lord, meaning it was an act of worship. And do you ever see your friends and people that have your back like these guys had David's back and just thank the Lord for him? That's what David's doing. He's going, man, thank you, Lord, for giving me men that love me enough to risk their lives just to bring me a cup of water. He says, far be it for me before my God that I should do this. Shall I drink the lifeblood of these men? For at the risk of their lives, they bought it. Therefore, he would not drink it. But these are the things that were done by the mighty men. And I love the way. Isn't that good? Don't you need friends like that? Man, we all need friends like that. I love in verse 22, see some more of these guys. He calls a valiant man, a doer of great deeds. It says, he struck down two heroes of Moab. It says, he also went down and struck a lion in a pit on a day when snow had fallen. Don't you love that's in the Bible? Like this guy chased a lion down a pit on a snowy day, caught him, killed him, and took him home. Now, why would you do that? Well, probably this lion had been a predator stealing things from them and probably was a, was a danger to others. And so this guy caught a glimpse of this lion and was like, oh, you're mine. Man, how, how often do we act with, when, to seize an opportunity when God brings it our way? And these are men who saw a chance to make a difference and they acted quickly and chased the lion in, down into a pit on a snowy day. I love that that's in the Bible and that, 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 that God puts that here. Um, it's fascinating to me that God includes these stories of, of, of honoring men in our Bibles. I think the world, our world's just lost so much of our sense of honor, our sense of nobility, our sense of place, our sense of purpose. I, I think when I, when I look at our world, we just seem to have lost our way in so much. And yet I look here at the Bible and I look who God has, has exalted and we see those things here. We read about courage and passion. We read about resourcefulness. We read about guys that, that are willing to take risks and sacrifice and friendship and honor and wisdom and joy. And you read about those things here as you think about these men. And I just think, man, God, give us men like that. Give us men that, that are willing to, uh, to take opportunities to do good in our world. Uh, but seriously, who, who in our world lives like that? And we Christians ought to live like that. If we believe that God is sovereign over all things, that God's promises are all true, then would we not be free to live a noble, purpose-filled life for the cause of Christ? And would it, would it be so? Now let's look at uh, chapter 12. Chapter 12 begins and says, now these are the men who, uh, who came to David at Ziklag. Now Ziklag, you may remember, is when David was living in exile and he'd been, he'd been sent away from home. And so he went out and lived amongst the enemy in this place called Ziklag, these are men who joined David in exile because they knew that he was the one that God had called king. So these are the men that came to David at Ziklag while he could not move about freely because of Saul, the son of Kish. And they were among the mighty men who helped him in war. They were the bowmen who could shoot arrows and sling stones with either the right or left hand. And they were Benjamites. 
Saul's kinsmen. Now, why does it say they're Benjamites, Saul's kinsmen? Now, think about what it would take that of your own tribe, of your own family, of your own people, that you would leave Saul, who's king, and go away and serve David, who's, who's the counter king. These were men who walked by faith. About 16 months before Saul ever died, they joined David and said, David, we'll, we will see you as our king even now. Um, it also throws in this little note that they were ambidextrous. Don't you like that? Like these guys could fight from either side. They could fight right-handed, left-handed. They, these were skilled men who had honed their craft. Uh, verses 8 to 15 talks about the men of Gad. They joined David even earlier. They probably were some that went to him during the, the cave of Adullam time. Uh, check these guys out. It says their faces were like the faces of a lion and they were swift as gazelles upon the mountains. These are the men who crossed the Jordan in the first month while it was overflowing its banks and put to flight all those in the valleys. These are men that during a time of flood risked everything, went across in order to fight a battle uh, because they didn't want to lose the opportunity and wait on the, the waters to go down. And these are people of strong faith who risked their lives for what they believed. Uh, verse 16 to 18, I love what David says. David receives these warriors and he says, if you come in friendship, my heart will be knit to yours. I mean, don't you feel that way about people that come alongside you? People that go to war with you, people that go to battle with you, people that are in the trenches with you. Don't you just feel like, man, my heart's knit to you if you come to me as a friend and as a brother and as a leader. I resonate with that in every way. I wanna look with you at verse 32. Let's look at another group, group called the men of Issachar. Men of Issachar, it said, understood the times. And so they, um, they, they understood the, the times and what it was that God was doing in Israel. When he talks about understanding the times, he's not talking about understanding like the, the timeline and some eschatological uh, framework. He's saying they understood what was going on in the world and what God was doing. They knew what was true. They understood that, that the word of the Lord had spoken, that God had taken the kingdom away from Saul and he'd given it to David. And having looked at everything, they understood the times and they acted on what God had said. Um, these are not guys who kind of, you know, you know the, the kind of you do this and put your finger up and kind of feel which way the wind's blowing. These are not guys who just put their finger up in the air to see which way the cultural winds were blowing and opted that way. These are not consumers who were looking for an easy way out. These are men who said, what has the Lord said? If the Lord has spoken, then I will stay true. And so they did. And so the men of Issachar, um, I, I love the way it describes verse 33. It says these men acted with singleness of purpose. In 38, it says that they acted with a whole heart for these things. These were men who were, who were devoted to the Lord and to what his plans were. And remember, this is not men who came when things were easy. These are men who sought out David when things were especially hard in order to stay true. That's what faith looks like. So friends, as we think about this, um, what is it we're called to do? Um, I'm not going to tell you you've got to become an ambidextrous warrior who can fight with either hand. Uh, that, that's not what we need. Uh, we, we, don't, we don't need you to to take a stand in a field of barley. Uh, but I think there are some applications for this and some ways that we can, that we can live this out. And so as we think about um, really what, what this is calling us to do, I have a question for you. Isn't our king greater than, David, than King David? Is not Jesus a greater king than King David? And if that's true, then wouldn't logic dictate that we would be more devoted to Christ than they were to David? that we may be more passionate about Christ than they were about, king, about David's kingdom. That we would be more wholehearted, single-minded about seeing Christ exalted as king than even they were. 
that's my heart for us as we think about this. Let me just give you ways in which we know Jesus is greater. First, Jesus' kingdom is greater. David began his reign, it says at the age of 30, uh, 30 years uh, old was when priests began their formal ministry. 30 years old is also considered the ideal time whenever a king would, would, would begin to reign. And, and so David began at 30. Do you know another man, a son of David, who came later, who began his ministry at the age of 30 and who announced his kingdom at the age of 30? That was Jesus. Jesus came, Mark 1 tells us, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Believe the good news that God's kingdom has come. And so Jesus' kingdom is greater. Jesus' kingdom is also holy. As David was a good king, but he was still a sinner just like us. In fact, one of the passages we skipped in 2 Samuel 5, uh, there, there's a couple verses there where it talks about David's offspring, it says that he had many sons and lists his son's names. Now, unfortunately, the way David had many sons was David also had many wives and many concubines. And that's gonna ultimately be David's downfall. In fact, Deuteronomy 17 explicitly forbid the kings of, of Israel from collecting many wives and many concubines because it says it will lead your heart astray. And this becomes a, a, a stumbling block for David and becomes his undoing in terms of his family. Um, he, he, his kingdom would, would flourish, but his, his family and his home would flounder. And so we'll see that happening. But King Jesus, King Jesus was perfectly obedient. Um, King Jesus said this uh, in John 8. It says, Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own authority, but I speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me and he has not left me alone for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. See, David departed and his, far, his heart, heart went astray from the Lord. Jesus was always faithful and Jesus remained true. So Jesus' uh, kingdom is holy. Jesus' kingdom also fulfills greater promises. Remember, David fulfilled the promise of Abraham uh, the, that they would inhabit the land and he drove out the Jebusites. And so he was able to bring about that conquering of, uh, of that, little, uh, that little parcel that God had, had given them and promised to them. David was able to drive them out and fulfill an 800-year wait uh, a promise they'd waited for for 800 years. But look at 2 Corinthians 1.20. Look how much greater Jesus is. It says, for all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the linchpin. He's the thing that all the promises of God hang upon. And so everything that God has promised from, from the beginning of the Bible until the very end of it and into all eternity, it all hinges on the life, death, resurrection, and return of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one that all depends on. So he, all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus, meaning Jesus, because he's come and because he's gonna come again, all the promises are being fulfilled and God will, will make them all to be true because of him. Friends, life will have its ups and downs. Things may not progress as we, as we want it to, but you need to know because of Christ, look to him, all of God's promises will be yes to us one day. And so we trust that and we rest on the fact that God's promises never fail. Lastly, we see that Jesus' kingdom's forever. David's kingdom, it tells us, lasted about 40 years, which is kind of considered the best uh, period of time. It's considered a, a really ideal time for a king to reign. He lived uh, seven and a half years reigning over the tribe of Judah and Hebron, and then 33 years over all of Israel and Judah together in Jerusalem. And so David's kingdom lasted 40 years, but Christ's kingdom will never end. Hebrews 12 says, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. There's nothing in human history that can shake the kingdom of King Jesus. 
And so we can rest in that. And David captured Jerusalem, built it into a great city. It became a place of peace and prosperity. It became a symbol for them of God's blessing and his favor, the fact that the Lord was with him, they said. And so the way in which they saw Jerusalem was that it was a great blessing to them and it was a glorious thing. But friends, it didn't last. Eventually it was overrun. Jerusalem, we're still fighting over Jerusalem, aren't we? Because David wasn't strong enough and his kingdom wasn't forever. But consider for a moment the primary city of Jesus' heavenly kingdom. When you, when you get to Revelation, and you get to Revelation 21, and it says there's a city that descends, what city is it? Is it, is it the, new, the new Edmund? Is it the new Yukon? The new Deer Creek? No, it's the new what? It's the new Jerusalem. See, what David was able to do in part, Jesus is going to do forever. And he's going to bring a new Jerusalem. I want to just read for you out of Revelation 21 a little bit of what it says about this new city that's coming, that God will bring down to us. Verse, uh, Revelation 21. says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be to them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And Jesus is the one who will usher that in. When you go on to the end of that chapter and think about the new Jerusalem, um, don't wanna, you may wanna go back and reread all of this later. It's just, it, it stirs your heart. But let me just give you a, a summary. It talks about this, it says, the wall was built of jasper and the city was pure gold like clear glass and the foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. First was jasper, then sapphire, the third agate, and the, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the, the sixth sir, sir, uh, carnelian, the fourth chrysolite, the eighth uh, beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were the twelve pearls and each of the gates were a single pearl and the city the street of the city were of pure gold, like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city. So there was no place for sacrifices, no ways they had to go in order to make any connection with the Lord. Why? It says, and I saw that there was no temple in the city, for the temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the lamp is the Lamb. And by its light the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, for there will be no night there. And they will bring into it the glory and the honor of all the nations. But nothing unclean will enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those whose name are written in the Lamb's book of life. And friends, that's a, that's a city. That's a city I want to experience where, where we, we have no need of a place to worship because God's right here with us. We worship him and see him face to face. And, and where everything's lit up by the glory of God and where all the, the, the nations that have waged war after war and shed blood and, and vied for votes and everything that had to happen in our world, all of the, the turmoil, all of those kings humbly come and they bow down before him and they bring all their glory and put it at the feet of the one who is truly glorious, the king of kings the Lord of lords, the one who reigns over all of it. That's the day we look for. Christ's kingdom is forever. 
You know, Jesus never has to run for re-election. <laughs> Ever. And the good news is, none of us would want him to. Because we will find great joy there, and we will never want anything else. Friends, can I ask you a question? Those who are there are not there because they are mighty. They're there because their name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Because they have trusted the sacrificial blood of the Lamb to atone and pay the price of their sins. Do you know that? Do you know Christ as your Savior? Do you know Christ as your King? Who in his mercy and grace died for you? That he might make a way for you to spend eternity with him in the new Jerusalem and the new heavens and new earth. If you haven't, and I'd love, to spend, I'd love to spend forever with you. I'd love to get to celebrate that city with you. I'd love to get to run those streets with you. I'd love to get to sing in those streets, to feast in those streets. I'd love to pass a glass with you at a table in that time. But you've got to come to Christ, and you've got to trust him now. And for those of us who are believers, and don't you just think that if that's our king and that's our future, that we ought to just give everything we have to him? that we ought to hold nothing back. That we ought to be like David's mighty men, but even greater. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that you would cause us to love your son, Jesus. That you cause us to love his kingdom. Help us to trust his grace. But also help us to submit to his lordship and his rule over us. Father, might we be as God's, as Christ's mighty men who give our lives passionately and wholeheartedly with single purpose to his cause, to the cause of his church. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.